Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause us to feel what is articulated in these two psalms that are before us. Lord, we ask that you would so overwhelm us with your glory that your praise would well up from within us and come overflowing out of us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to know you as our help, as the one who liberates the captives and opens the eyes of the blind, the one who heals the brokenhearted and binds up all their wounds. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to experience you as our Father, as our covenant Lord. And we ask that you would do all these things by the power of your Spirit, working through your Word, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I would invite you to open uh, the Bible this morning to Psalms 146 and 147, and that just leaves three left after today in the whole 150 Psalms, and Lord willing, uh, we'll, we'll do those uh, the next time I'm in this pulpit. So we got two more sermons, Lord willing, on the whole book of Psalms. And these last five Psalms are... They're like an explosion of praise. And I wonder if you feel right now and normally the way that this psalmist who wrote these psalms feels. I wonder if you, if you feel like praising God. Or if you kind of come to a passage like this and you, you want to feel this way maybe. But if you're honest with yourself, it just not, doesn't seem to be happening. This is not the first thing that comes to your mind, and this is maybe not the, the most prominent thing in your heart that you want to commit yourself to, to praising God. And so I think it's worth asking the question, what would prompt all this praise? What would make it so that Psalms 146 through 150 is just a steady stream of, 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 of praise, like a like a Niagara Falls of praise, so much cascading praise that you can't account for all of it. What would prompt all of this? And, and here's what I think will happen for us. If we, can, if we can see what it is that prompts the psalmist to respond this way, then we can begin to take steps toward feeling what the psalmist feels. So if, if if point B is where the psalmist is and point A is where we, is, we are, how do we get from point A to point B? What we is, yeah, sorry. How do we get from here to there? How do we get from the way that we feel right now to the way this psalmist feels in Psalms 146 to 150? I want to put uh, two, thing, two, three things before you to suggest why it is that the Psalter ends the way it does. The, the first thing I want to suggest to you is that the psalmist is responding to an epic story. He's responding to something that's bigger than Star Wars, bigger than Harry Potter, bigger than Lord of the Rings, bigger than anything that you can imagine. He's responding to a story that starts at the beginning of all things, at the creation of the world, and extends to the end of all things, and then eternity future. That's what he's responding to. 
So that's the first thing we want to we put before our, our minds, that the psalmist is thinking about the grand story of the whole world. And, and what that does is it lifts our eyes up off of our immediate concerns, off the details of our daily lives, and it does something uh, for us like what happened to um, Jim Sundberg. Uh, years ago, I was working at Canacut Camps, and one of my coworkers was a guy named Aaron Sunberg, and his dad's name was Jim Sunberg. Jim Sunberg, this gives me chills to retell this story, Jim Sunberg was the catcher for the Kansas City Royals in 1985. And, and one day, as we're at camp um, together, we're, we're out there, you know, teaching these kids baseball, and, and Aaron's dad comes to visit. We're out in the middle of nowhere in Missouri, and we got a, a, a World Series champion catcher, big leaguer, right here on this little podunk ball field with us. And he, and, he, and he calls the kids together, and he starts telling us this story of the 1985 Kansas City Royals. And uh, they, it, it was a hard-fought uh, fight for them even to make the playoffs. And then they fought through the playoffs, and they get to the World Series, and the St. Louis Cardinals had them beat. And it, it, everything went wrong for the Cardinals all at once. It's a, it's a famous story. But then they had Brett Saberhagen on the mound for game, game seven. And Jim Sundberg talks about how, um, how when, when he sat down in the bullpen for Brett Saberhagen to warm up, he was this 19-year-old pitcher. He, he won the Cy Young Award that year. He was absolutely dominant. He, was, he had an amazing season. And Sundberg says, from the minute he threw the first pitch, I knew we were going to win. He said it was over. It was over from the first pitch in the warm-ups. And then he said, you know what? He said, since I trusted Christ as my Savior, and since I saw how the Bible ends, he says, that's the way life feels. It feels like Brett Saberhagen is on the mound, and I know how this thing is going to go. That, that's, that's the way the psalmist is, is feeling here. He's certain of how the world is going to turn out, not because of a measly right arm of a really good Cy Young Award-winning pitcher, but because Almighty God has guaranteed this. Okay, so first, we got an epic story. Second, we've got the best ending of the biggest story guaranteed by Almighty God. This is why the psalmist is feeling this praise. And then third, this psalmist is personally engaging with the living God. That's what we're going to see in these two psalms. So I would invite you to look with me at Psalms 146 and 147. And, and before, we, before we plunge into 146, let me just remind you of a couple of things that we saw in 145. We talked about how in 145, verse 4, when it says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What's going on there is that the psalmist is thinking about the way that, that God's glorious acts of creation and redemption from the Scriptures are going to be passed from fathers to children, from mothers to daughters, from one generation to another as families rehearse the Scriptures together. And then look down at verse 8 of Psalm 145, where it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And we talked about how this is Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is God's own statement of who He is. This is very important. I don't want you to miss this. God's character, out of God's character, out of who God is, flow God's promises for the future. 
Okay? So God's promises for the future are as certain as his character. God is not going to change. That means what God has promised for the future is going to happen. That is what is prompting all this praise in Psalms 146 through 150. Okay, so look with me at Psalm 146, verse 1. The psalmist says, praise the Lord. And really, in Hebrew, this is, this is that, that great word, hallelujah. And this is, a, this is a plural, and it's a command. So it's like the psalmist is saying, y'all praise. Hallelujah, that's you all praise. And then what you've got at the end of that, yah, is a shortened form of the name Yahweh. Hallelujah, you all praise Yahweh. So he gives a command to his audience. And then he gives the command to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This guy is dealing with reality. And his response to reality is, the Lord deserves praise, and my soul, you need to praise the Lord. And then he commits himself in verse 2. So he's got a call to praise in verse 1, and then a commitment to praise in verse 2. He says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let me just um, offer you a point of application here. I think this is a great commitment to make. This is a great commitment to make, to commit to praising the Lord at all times. And, and here's, here's some action steps that you can take. You ought, to, you ought to try to commit some of these songs that we sing here at Kenwood Baptist Church to memory. And then when you're standing in line or you're in the car or you're in the shower or whatever, you've got dead space, you ought to start rehearsing these songs. You will find your soul lifted you will find yourself borne up on the wings of an eagle if you will commit yourself to praise, if you will put yourself in position to praise. So we want to make this commitment. We want to hear this call, praise the Lord, verse 1, and then we want to make the commitment in verse 2. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. He is worthy. He is worthy. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 explain why we should not trust humanity ultimately and finally. So look at verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. This is more than him just saying, don't trust the government. I mean, I think most people can probably resonate with that. We've seen the government fail. The government has failed all kinds of people in all kinds of way, ways. All governments all over the world have failed all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. All human princes, all human kings, they have failed their subjects. They are not up to the task. But then he, he goes further than that in the rest of verse 3. He says, put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Listen to what he's saying. Don't trust somebody that can't save you. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I thought Son of Man was a way of referring to the coming Son of Man. Yeah, but this is a different Son of Man because this is a Son of Man that can't save. And then look at what he says about this Son of Man that can't save in verse 4. He says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. 
So it's true that the Bible often refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, but we're not talking about Jesus here because Jesus can save, and when Jesus dies, his plans don't perish. In fact, his plan is being accomplished, and three days later, he's raised from the dead, and no death will ever stop him again. What this is saying is don't trust humanity. Don't look to humanity to do for you what only God can do for you. So I, I would just encourage you to stop and think for a moment and ask yourself, what am I trusting? What am I looking to? Are you looking to government to make all things right? You know, if you, if you listen carefully to the promises of politicians, they'll start sounding like re religious figures. They'll start sounding like they're going to heal all the world's hurts, like they're going to make it so that everybody is safe and happy, like everybody has everything. that They, they can't do all those things. They should not make religious promises, but they do. Don't trust them. But maybe it's not political officials you're trusting. Maybe you're trusting yourself. I, I know that in my own heart, I am tempted to trust my efficiency, my diligence. I'm tempted to trust my abilities to accomplish everything that I need to pull off. And, and the text is telling me, don't put your trust in somebody that can't save. That includes you. Don't trust humanity. We shouldn't trust uh, sports champions to do something for us. They cannot save. They will, not, they will not bring to us the solace that our souls long for. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. There's an end to every human life. Don't trust humans. And then there's a contrast in verses 5 through 7. It's like the psalmist says, okay, we got these people that trust people, but look at how happy, look at how blessed the people are whose help is the God of Jacob. Verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Despair, the, our English word despair, is built off, off a, a root uh, that, that maybe you know from Spanish or Latin, espero, I hope. Well, when, when, you, when you despair, your hopes have failed you. If you place your hope in anything other than the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that hope is going to fail you at some point. But if you hope in the Lord your God, you can praise like the psalmist. Because the Lord your God will never disappoint. He'll never fail you. You may be disappointed with the way that things work out. It may not go the way you want it to go. But he's God and he will do what he has promised to do. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And then look at how he, he talks about the Lord in verse 6. He says, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Uh, this, is a, this is a repudiation of all the idols that are worshipped. In, in the ancient world, all of these peoples, they had a god of the heavens, a storm god. They had a, a god of the seas. And then they had a god of the, the lands or the underworld. And, and this is the psalmist saying, no, the Lord made all those places... And the Lord reigns over all those places. 
I don't know every aspect of your life, but I suspect that there are things that you are tempted to look to that are not God in different realms of your life. And what this text is saying is the God of the Bible is Lord in every one of those realms. In every one of those realms where you're tempted to erect an idol that you want to bow down to, to get to give you what you want, from whether it's financial need or pleasure or, or influence over other people, in every one of those realms, God made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then look at the end of verse 6. Who keeps faith forever. Um, this word keeps, this is a word that can mean guard, protect, and that word that's rendered faith, I think it ought to be rendered truth there. God keeps truth. He protects truth. He preserves truth forever. God is the one who upholds truth, and truth is what enables faithfulness or faith. God made the world, and God sustains and preserves and protects the truth forever, as long as the world lasts and beyond. And then verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Notice how the Lord is applying His standards. He's upholding the truth there. And then He's providing for those in need. The oppressed are those who are being wronged. God did not make the world as a context for evil men to take advantage of the weak. God will protect the oppressed. The, the oppressors will be called to account. Their end will come. And God gives food to the hungry. Everyone who eats has been provided for ultimately by the Lord. Okay, so verses 5 through 7, they, they exclaim this happiness, this whole life gladness that flows from looking to the God of Jacob for your help, for, from hoping in the Lord who made all things, who upholds justice, who preserves truth, and who provides for his people. So a lot of that in verses 5 through 7 concerns creation, God's creation of the world, and providence, God's maintenance of the world, God's provision for all things. In the middle of verse 7, you'll notice if you're looking at an ESV like I am, the way, the way my text is formatted, there's a gap between uh, who gives food to the hungry and the Lord sets the prisoners free. And that's because the text seems to turn in a new direction, away from creation and providence, now to salvation. And, and the way this is worded, the next five statements here in verse 7b through verse 9 all start with the Lord. So he says, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. So it, it's all these, these celebratory statements of what the Lord does. Let's think about each of these in turn. Look at the end of verse 7 there. The Lord sets the prisoners free. This may sound familiar to you from Psalm 105, verse 20. Uh, that verse talks about Joseph. It's, it's worded exactly the same way. The Lord, uh, uh, through Pharaoh, uh, set Joseph free. And, and what the Lord did for Joseph 
is what the, what the, is the kind of thing that the Lord is going to do for his people. Think about Joseph's situation. He was in prison in Egypt. He had no way to get himself loose. He was not going to deliver himself. And all, in an altogether unexpected way, he comes out of prison and is placed at the right hand of Pharaoh so that only in respect to the throne is Pharaoh greater than Joseph. This is the way that God saves his people. It is inexplicable by human, by, by human understanding. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Think about God's people captive in Babylon. Do you remember what happened? The Babylonian king decided, any Israelite that wants to go back to their homeland, they're free to go, and I'll pay the way, and I'll fund the rebuilding of the temple. I mean, this is altogether inexplicable. The Lord sets the prisoners free. There's a, there's a greater imprisonment that Paul describes in Romans 8 when he speaks of how all creation is in bondage to corruption. And in the way that the Lord liberated Joseph, the way that the Lord liberated Israel at the, at the return from exile is the way that God is going to liberate all creation from bondage to corruption. We in ourselves cannot overcome death. We in ourselves cannot raise ourselves from the dead, but the Bible is telling us that because Christ rose from the dead, God is happy to for forgive those who trust in Christ, and he will raise them from the dead and set them free from bondage to corruption. This is what we read earlier in the service, Isaiah 61.1. Isaiah speaks of how the Lord, he, he proclaims liberty to the captives. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And, and this is, these two things, liberty for the captives and sight for the blind, these two things are commonly put together in the Old Testament to talk about the restoration of all, thi all things, to talk about the day when God is going to raise the dead and give sight to the blind and heal the lame and make all things new. Years ago, when, when Jill and I were, when we lived in Louisville before, we were members down at Clifton, and at that time, Clifton had a, a choir, and there was this, this wonderfully happy man who, who sang in the choir, and he was blind, and, and you, you know, he was almost like Stevie Wonder up there, just moving, and he, and he couldn't see, and, but he was with the music, and I can remember sitting in a pew and listening to him sing, and I don't remember the song, but it had something to do with, with resurrection and hope in Christ and all these things, and, and I can remember it just striking me, one day, Brad is going to see. The Lord is going to give sight to that man. The Lord is going to give, he's going to make all things new. There will be no flaws in resurrection bodies. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. Notice how these things pertain to the best end, to the biggest story. We're talking about ultimate redemption here. And so in the middle of verse 8, when it says, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. I think we're still talking about that, that end time lifting up of those who are bowed down. And then he says, at the end of verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. Now, I want to think about these statements together, okay? The Lord sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up the bowed down. He loves the righteous. And I want to suggest to you 
that every one of these statements is like a different angle on the same truth. And the same truth is this. The Lord saves His people. The Lord saves His people. This passage is talking about God being a Savior of those who belong to Him. Okay? So the Lord loves the righteous at the end of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 9. The way of the wicked He brings to ruin. So I want to suggest to you here that if you don't belong to the righteous, if you belong to the wicked, you're going to be a prisoner and the Lord is not going to set you free. You're going to be blind spiritually, physically, whatever, and you're not going to receive sight. You're going to be bowed down never to be lifted up or relieved. And you're not going to experience the love of the Lord if you are wicked. You are going to have what the end of verse 9 says, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This should remind you of Psalm 2. Do you remember what Psalm 2 says? It says, therefore, O kings, talking about these rebel kings, kings that are rebelling against King Jesus. It says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in the way. That's the way of the wicked that's going to be ruined. If you don't submit to Jesus, you will be ruined. So, so I'm not denying that it is the heart of God to lift up the downtrodden. I'm not denying that for a second. This is what God did with Abraham. Infertile Abraham, that's who the Lord chooses, right? Captive, enslaved Israel, that's the nation God chooses. But what God does is he becomes a father to those people. He becomes a husband to those people. And if God is not your father, if God is not your covenant Lord, your husband, his goodness does not flow to you. But here's the good news. You can become part of the family of God. You can enter into a covenant relationship with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who will be the bridegroom to His people. How? Well, you need to turn away from these idols. You need to turn away from the pleasures and the sins that distract you from God. And you need to give yourself fully to hoping and trusting in the Lord. To anticipate what we're going to see in just a second, well, I won't, I won't, we won't, we'll get there in just a second. There's going to be more of this in Psalm 147. Now, everything I've just said applies to verse 9. Look at verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The Lord watches over the sojourners. What sojourners are we talking about? We're talking about God's sojourning people. That's who we're talking about. Okay, so, so let, me, let me just suggest to you that if there is a Hindu in modern-day Calcutta bowing down to idols who wants to immigrate to some other land, that we're, that's not the kind of sojourners we're talking about. If there's a Muslim who's committed to Allah and he's in rebellion against the Lord Jesus and he wants to immigrate to not, some new land, that's not the kind of sojourner that we're talking about. If there's a, a modern-day American who's committed to money or efficiency or industry or whatever, and he wants to go some. that's not the kind of sojourner that we're talking about. The kind of sojourner that we're talking about here is somebody that is, that is making pilgrimage through this life, trusting in Christ because his ultimate home is the new Jerusalem. That's the kind of sojourner that the Bible is talking about. He upholds the widow and the fatherless because he's a husband to his people because he's a father to the fatherless. But if he's not your husband and he's not your father, then this doesn't apply to you. 
You can make it apply to you. You can repent of your sin. You can trust in Christ. You can turn away from idolatry. And you should. But look at the end of verse 9. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And then verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And so he ends where he begins. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So in verses 1 and 2, he commits himself to praise. Verse 10, he says the Lord's going to reign forever. Verses 3 and 4, he says, don't trust man. Look at verses 8 and 9, 7b through 9. What he's saying there is, look at how powerful God is. The implication is trust God. And then in the middle of the psalm, verses 5 through 7, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. This is, this is where we want to live. We want to live in that blessedness. And, and this takes us right into Psalm 147. Psalm 147, again, begins and ends, as every one of these last psalms do. 146 through 150 all begin and end with praise the Lord or hallelujah. That's the first and last, psalm, first and last word of each one of these psalms. So again, the psalmist begins... Praise the Lord. All of you, praise the Lord. And then he says, For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. When he says it's pleasant, what he means is it's enjoyable to you. I, I can attest to this. I trust you can attest to this. It is enjoyable to be here and to have this lovely music resonate through this building and to sing praise with a whole heart to God. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's also saying, when he says a song of praise is fitting, he's saying it's right. God deserves this praise, and it is good for it to be rendered up to him. So that's the introductory statement of the psalm. The Lord is worthy of praise, so praise him. It's good for you, so praise him. And then in verses 2 through 9, the psalmist is going to go through this list of things that God does. And the list is so varied that, that it creates this impression that God is sovereign over everything. But it, so, so don't miss that impression. God is in control of everything. That's what this list is going to tell us. But there's also some I think some very interesting sort of movements of thought through these verses. So look at verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. Now we just had in 146, 7b, the Lord sets the prisoners free. So we got a new exodus and a return from exile and now the building of a new city. So I think we're thinking in terms of the, the best ending of the biggest story. That's how the story is going to end. Uh, the, the new Jerusalem that's been prepared by God in heaven is going to come down out of heaven from God, the city that God himself built. This also, I think, calls to mind Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord uh, builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, those who keep watch, uh, keep watch in vain, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. And then look at the next statement. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. All those, all those Israelites that were scattered from the exile, all of God's people are going to be gathered together. And then this beautiful verse 3. It's amazing that the Bible says things like this. When you think about the fact that we're talking 
about the creator of the universe, the one whom the Bible says spoke all things into existence, the one whom the Bible says does not change. He, he, he cannot. He, he's altogether perfect. How could you make perfection better? He, he's not going to change, and yet, transcendent as he is, verse 3 says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So here you see how the psalmist is not just thinking of this epic story and the best end of the best story that's ever been told. There's an intensely personal engagement with the living God that he's testifying to. This is a man who has experienced God healing his broken heart. For him to be able to say, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Did you notice this language in Psalm 61? To proclaim liberty to the captives. No, I I skipped it. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me. This is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus reads this passage in Luke 4. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. When we put these two psalms together, verses 3 and 4 of 146, put not your trust in princes, only God can heal you. Only He can bind up your soul. Go to Him. Think of the Lord Jesus saying, how often I have longed, O Jerusalem, to gather you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks. Go to Him. He will heal you. Notice also how you've got, you've got the liberation of the people, the building of the city, and then the healing of the people, the renewal of the people. That's, that's going to be repeated here. Look at verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. Now, why would he go from city to the heavens? Well, I think, I just put this out here. You think about it. I think he's thinking in terms of new creation, new heavens and new earth. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God is displaying his wisdom and his power in creation and new creation. And then he he goes back again from renewing the world, verse 6, to personal attention from the Lord himself. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. But again, he casts the wicked to the ground. We don't want to be with the wicked. We don't want to be destroyed in the way of the wicked. We don't want to be cast to the ground. We want to be those who are lifted up. So we've got to pursue humility. And the best way to pursue humility is to experience God. If you experience God, you will know how small you are. Verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Verse 8, he covers the heavens with clouds. Again, he's thinking, I think, of this new creation. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So all of these fledgling, cawing birds, God is providing for them all. And again, that varied list creates the impression that God is sovereignly in control of all things. And then in verses 10 and 11... The psalmist says what doesn't please the Lord and what does please the Lord. 
When he says in verse 10, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, I think the idea is something like this. Don't think that you're going to impress God by your, your really powerful car or your really powerful weapons, right? Horses in the ancient world, they were used for transport and they were used for battle. And so the, it's like the psalmist is saying, you're not going to impress God with your might or with your achievements. You, you, can, you can try to get yourself all bowed, bowed up and that is not going to stand you in God's favor. That's what, now, he's not saying God doesn't take pleasure in what he's created. He's just saying those things are not what's going to result in God's pleasure. Verse 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Let's think about this idea. There are two things here that, that, that result in God's pleasure. The fear of God is the first one. The Lord is fearsome. He is fearsome. When people respond to him as they should, he's pleased. We're supposed to be afraid of him. Fear of God results in a desire to obey. You do not want to cross him. You do not want him to have to tell you twice. Fear of God results in a desire to obey. Fear of God results in an unwillingness to transgress. Because you don't want to face the consequences. Now think about the dynamic at work here. You are aware of his presence. You know that he's watching. You believe he's told you the truth when he laid out the standard. You believe that he's, he's good and he's true and he's going to uphold the standard. And you fear the standard being applied to you because you've transgressed. This is all good and right. And the Bible says the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. You want to please God? You want to avoid the destruction of the wicked? You want to be part of his family? A member of his covenant? Fear him. And then look at the second thing in verse 11. In those who hope in his steadfast love. These two things are profoundly interconnected. Because often when we transgress, when we sin... What's happening is we're looking for an experience of steadfast love. We're looking for the elation and the freedom and the security and the joy that comes when we experience God's love. But we're looking for it in a way that God has forbidden. That, that, this is sort of at the root of our sin. But if we fear him, we will say, I'm not going to hope in those sins. I'm not going to hope in those forbidden things. I'm going to hope in the Lord's steadfast love. And so what we need to remind ourselves is that this question is always standing before us. Do I want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant? Do I want to hear those words? And this verse is telling us how to, how to, how to hear those words. Fear God, hope in His steadfast love. The Lord delights in those who fear Him. The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in His love. And fearing God and hoping in His love provide powerful protection against the allure of evil. 
Okay, so we start with praise in verse 1. Verses 2 through 9, we got this list of things that God does. Verses 10 and 11, two things that please God, that result in His pleasure. Verses 12 through 18, another list of things that God does. Verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. That's the city that God built. Back in verse 2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. And, and really, I think what he's saying is, inhabitants of Jerusalem, citizens of the new city, praise the Lord. Why? Verse 13, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He provides the protection. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace, shalom, in your borders. God is the one who's providing the security and the flourishing in the new city. This reminds me of Zechariah chapter 2, where the Lord says in verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The Lord himself is going to provide the protection. The Lord himself is going to be the, the cause of flourishing in the city. And then in, in verse 14, he makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. There's, there's no lack in what he provides. Verses 15 through 18 focus on God's powerful word. God's word made the world. God's word upholds the world, Hebrews 1.3. Verse 15, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. And then it's as though God is speaking the snow into existence in verse 16. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. This is just a celebration of the beauty of creation here. He, verse 17, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word. So he sent the word and all that cold came on, on the world. Now he sends out his word and the temperatures begin to rise. And, and all that ice and snow melts. And he makes his wind blow and the waters flow. The snow melt comes off the mountains. That same word. Verses 15 through 18, that created the world, that causes the seasons, that same word is the revelation of God's good instructions that we now read about in verse 19. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. And then verse 20, he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. You know, there are some people who think about all the peoples on earth who have never heard the gospel. And, and, and I, I read a, a long book where this guy was trying to argue that the reason the Bible makes ex exclusive statements, the reason the Bible says things like Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given among man whereby they must be saved except the name of Jesus. That's uh, John 14.6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And this guy says... The only reason the Bible says things like that is because the biblical authors are not aware of how many people never heard the message. If they knew how many people out there never heard the message, they would say, well, if they're faithful to their religions or if they're faithful to the light that they have or something like this, then maybe they could be saved. But look at verses 19 and 20. He gave the word to Jacob, that's Israel. He didn't do this with any other nation. I think the biblical author is aware of all the other nations. So why is he saying this? Here's why he's saying this. He wants his audience to feel the way that God has treated them in a special way. He wants his audience to recognize 
you are receiving benefits that other people don't get. And you need to recognize how privileged you are. Nobody else gets this opportunity. You have the Bible right here in your lap. There are people in the world that don't have a Bible. They don't have access to it. We're not supposed to be torn up about that. We're supposed to feel God's love extended to us. And then I think some more things we're supposed to feel are things like, I don't deserve this. How do I get the word to those people out there? I think that's what we're supposed to feel. Not, oh, well, the Bible wouldn't talk this way if it knew better. No, we don't critique the Bible. We don't say they should have known better. We say, God, why did you give this to me? Why did I get, praise the Lord, that this was revealed to me? That's how we're supposed to respond. Psalms 146 and 147 joined together to praise God for the victory that he has won through the death of Jesus on the cross and that he will consummate when Christ returns. This victory, it's clear from the book of Psalms that this victory comes from the future king from David's line. And this victory is going to lead to the gathering in of all God's people, the building up of God's city, and the enjoyment of God's people of God's glory. In other words, God's people are going to enjoy God's glory forever in a new Jerusalem where broken hearts are healed, wounded souls are mended, and God's people will enjoy His peace, His shalom. Verse 14, He makes peace in your borders. This is so much better than Star Wars, A New Hope. This is a real hope. This is really the only hope that people have. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause us to respond to this epic story of all creation as we should. Lord, make us feel in response to the scriptures what we ought to feel. Cause our hearts to resonate with this call, this command to praise you. And then, Lord, help us to commit our souls to praising you as long as we live. And make everything that we do accord with this commitment to praise. Help us to repent quickly. Lord, if there are people here who don't know you, I pray that they would turn away from their ignorance and unbelief that they would trust completely in you, that they would believe your word, that they would fear you and hope in your steadfast love. And Lord, I pray that you'd meet them. I pray that you would heal their broken hearts and cause them to experience you, the great physician, binding up their wounds. Lord, we ask that you would do all these things for the glory of your great name and for the good of our souls. In Christ's name, amen.